Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. While many winemakers approach their winemaking with a farmer's mindset, Steve Mathiason of Mathiason Wines is a farmer who approaches his farming with a winemaker's mindset. A farmer first, Mathiason sees the vine as only one part of a larger agricultural picture. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart, and we're recording today's episode at City Winery in Chicago. Joining me is Steve Mathiason of Mathiason Wines. Welcome. Thank you. How'd you get into wine? I got into wine because, well, for several reasons. I was really into food, always gardening when I was a kid. Um, I started, I had, um, got, didn't do well in school, let's put it that way, pretty bad ADD. And in the 70s, they sent, I went to this, to an um, alternative kind of hippie school that, um, unstructured and we had a, every there's a garden plot you could you could sign up for a couple rows in the garden and so um, it was grade school so I just loved planting radish seeds and watching them grow and just wanted to be outside and um, and around that same time my parents were splitting up and I was shipped out to my cousin's farm in um, Manitoba and um, I just loved the tractors loved the open loved the sky and so, so it was really the farming, gardening, and then translating later on, teenage years into food, and I was into cycling, and I had this um, French cycling book that had a whole section on food, and it was, since it was a French cycling book written by the, like, the French Olympic coach from back in the 70s, he, it was like cycling power food was like ham and brie, sandwich soaked in, in white wine for digestion that you're supposed to drink while you're or eat while you're riding that, you know, and I just kind of get, and, and further on getting into like college and the Beatniks and Jack Kerouac and Gary Snyder and camping with a bottle of wine, going out, you know, California, that I was living in California at that point, and you know, a, a bottle of wine, go to the, read poetry. It was just, it, it, all those kind of things have just, you know, my, my stepdad growing up was a um, World War II vet and he was stationed in the Mosul after the war and got into drinking Riesling. You would trade diesel with the farmers for Riesling. <laughs> and, um, and so he always, we always had um, Riesling in the fridge growing up. It was, a lot of it was crap, basically, but it was um, just part of the, you know, them having a glass of wine for dinner was just part of the house. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so like all these things sort of conspired. So then when I got into, as an adult, and I managed to find a career in agriculture I, um, I was just wanted, I was just, organic farming was what I was interested in, and wine was just, uh, uh, and cooking were passions, but for, I didn't see a path to that for career-wise. I just wanted to so- somehow get into farming, and I got an internship working at, for a consulting company that did sustainable ag, which was my core interest at the time, but they're one of the crops, the main crop that they focused on to consult with growers on reducing their pesticide use was wine grapes. So, so I switched over from, I had been brewing beer, I switched over from brewing beer to home beer brewer to being a home winemaker. And then um, every year getting grapes from the vineyards where I was working. And then, where was that? That was down in Modesto. So that's like Gallo country basically, mm-hmm. low, low end grapes, but smart farmers learned a lot. 
and, um, and just made wine every year and then worked in Lodi, made, you know, and then so I switched over to being a home winemaker from Lodi grapes and worked up at R.H. Phillips. And so when we eventually moved to Napa and I was still home winemaking, at that point we started my own consulting company. I was still home winemaking. Um, at that point I'd been home winemaking for about 10 years. In 2003, we, um, my wife and I decided that we would, let's make a little bit more and sell it. And so we started, that's when we started Mathiasen. And what wines are you making right now? All right, well, so, okay, so my interest in um, the vineyard side, I'm more interested in the vineyards than the winemaking at this point in my career. I always have been, but, you know, but especially so right now, the vineyards still can fascinate me more with their mystery than the, the winemaking process is fascinating as well, but really it's the vineyards that I'm, I think about every day. And so what I, I like making, I like, horticulture right so if you're anyone who's interested in horticulture like let's say you're interested in tomatoes you don't grow one variety you're interested in the heirloom tomatoes you try a whole bunch of different varieties in your garden if you're into roses you do a whole bunch of different roses see what they're all like try them all they're different to grow their flowers are different so that's my approach to growing different grapes so when you so the long answer to what wines we make we make over 25 different varietals Wow, you're and a so, lot of grapes. A lot of different stuff. And so some of the, our wines are blends, so we make about 15 or so wines per year. And so I, I just love to experiment. Um, the, the varietal that probably became most known for was Ribola Gialla. Um, but the one we make the most of is Chardonnay. And I was on a panel in England with Jancis Robinson, and someone asked the question, well, what's the hottest new variety in California right now? And her answer was Chardonnay. And the reason why is that Chardonnay has, you know, we got to some the stylistic extreme of sort of oak and butter, and now the new well, frontier the, is a high ripping acid, oh, real lean. Tons of different Chardonnay styles, and everyone's exploring, experimenting with acid, early ripening, medium ripening, you know, but ways of showing the terroir. Chardonnay is great at showing the terroir, and it's so different from site to site. It's so that, and so, I'm really excited about Chardonnay. I love. You know, and I, I, I went through the anything but Chardonnay and then kind of in making it myself, I ended up leasing a Chardonnay vineyard because I, I wanted to lease a vineyard that was right behind our house. But it's like now I'm stuck with all the Chardonnay, sort of like yawn, last time I wanted Chardonnay, but then I started getting into it. And it's and I love growing it and making it now. And, and, and I just love tasting it and trying different Chardonnays. But so Chardonnay, you know, so so they're all interesting. They're all, you know, whether it's Ribola Jala or Chardonnay or but you, you are, all you are working with these kind of grapes that you might not think of when you think of Napa Valley. You think of Napa Valley, obviously, the first thing that comes to mind is Cabernet. You make a little Cabernet, but you know, the things that are, I think, that are a little more exciting coming out of your label and your, your, your wines are, are, are the Ribola. Yeah. Uh, you're doing some Tokai Frulliano, right? Yep. Uh, these are not grapes that you think of when you think of Napa. Now, being that we're in the U.S., we're not restricted as to what you can yeah, grow exactly. or whatever the heck you want. Why are you growing these grapes, uh, particularly the ones that you know the, the, on the land that you own? Okay, so so Napa is so widely Cabernet defines Napa Valley today, but the, the big caveat in that is today Cabernet started to define Napa Valley in the early '60s when Julia Child's cookbook came out, and there and so there was a huge interest in French varietals. Before that, before the early 60s, Cab Napa Valley was mostly white grapes, actually. 
and it's gone through many phases. When um, it's, 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 I call it the big greenhouse, our climate in Napa Valley, just the way our proximity to the ocean, the weather is so mild and so consistent that you can grow just about anything. And so, so Cabernet happens to do really well there because, not because it's a site that is particularly suited to Cabernet. The reason Cabernet does really well there is it's a site that's particularly suited to grapes. And so Cabernet does great there, Chardonnay does great there, Rebola Jala does great. And so most of the history of Napa, there was a lot of exploration of, of trying different things. The Tokalon vineyard, when it was originally planted, had over 100 varieties. Really? So they, you think of Tokalon, you think Cabernet. Cabernet, yeah. and then maybe a little Fumé from uh, Mondavi. Yeah, exactly. There were over 100 varieties there, and the, the guy who planted it, um, um, what was his name, Crab, I think, he kept detailed notes on which ones you know, did better, which ones did worse. One of the top varieties that, that he thought had, was most suited to Napa Valley based on his experiments was Rufosco. Really? And so Rufosco... Yeah, yeah. And so like, we make a Rufosco. It's only a Rufosco in Napa Valley, but back 100 years ago, he thought it was, out of his 100-plus varieties, that was sort of the, the top five, along with Cabernet. So, you know, Riesling was widely planted in Napa because the Germans settled it to a large degree. Like Beringer, we a German family. You had a lot of Chasselis because Swiss Italians. Yep. The reason we have Charbonneau is, left, is the Swiss Italian influence. And so, um, you know, Zinfandel was, the ship, was a shipping grape in Prohibition um, that, because it's a nice, big, heavy cluster and it, and it um, juicy. It was, just, it was for the home wine making back east, people like Zinfandel, but it does really well. I mean, it's so, so I just, I mean, I love Cabernet and we make, I'm very proud of our Cabernet and, I, and it's a blend of various sites that are, that are um, you know, Cabernet in various parts of Napa Valley really shows where it's grown so clearly, but um, if I just made one grape, back, back to my earlier comment, I had having ADD when I was a kid, I, I just not interested in making one grape. I, I love trying the, trying the different things and exploring, experimenting every year. We try different grapes. We graft things into the vineyard or I'll go buy some grapes from, like I'll find out like someone that has, a little, like last year we made a Pinot Meunier. Like what's Napa Valley Pinot Meunier taste like? I, you know, we're going to find out, right? This year we made a Pinot Blanc from Napa Valley. I've made Pinot Noir from Napa Valley. Let's see. Let's let's you know if you if the, if your fundamentals are there, it's a good vineyard site, well farmed, do a good job winemaking. You know, we have this miraculous climate and great soils, and so this, you know, so we don't need it's it's just it's about um, having you know wine is fun. It, it seems that through your farming experience. You do a very good job of finding what does best with what you have. Our vineyard was all Merlot. All Merlot. Yep. And, and you replanted and it. And I've, I've grafted, I replanted a portion of it and a portion of it I grafted. So there's no Merlot left. We actually just replanted some Merlot because we need, we need Merlot for our Cabernet. But it's um, Schiopatino, Rufosco, Rebola Gialla and Petit Verdot. Currently. Again, not typical Napa yeah. Valley uh, yeah. varieties. And, you're, and Cabernet you're, Franc, sorry. You're Cabernet Oknol, Franc. right? Yes. Again, sort of not really what people think of immediately when they think of Napa Valley. You know, it's a little kind of east there. Yeah, uh, Oknol is, to, is the know, low end district. Rutherford. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's low to That's why we're there. for Napa Valley. Yeah. <laughs> the reason we're in the, in the low rent district is that's what we could afford. 
and it actually works out great for our style of wine because it, the, it's more morning fog and more in the cool bay breezes in the afternoon. So you don't tend to get the ultra ripe. So if someone's looking for that, it's not a great site. But in our case, we're looking for freshness and aromatics, and we don't want ultra ripeness. So it works out perfectly for us. So aside from freshness and ultra, not ultra ripeness, define your style of winemaking. Okay, so my, our style is, for, first off, we drink wine with dinner every single night. So wine that goes with, the wine going with the food, paramount. Um, my, for me, to have a wine go with food, it needs to have ample acidity. It needs to have moderate alcohol. Everything needs to be in balance so we don't overpower the, the food with like high levels of oak or high levels of some, something that really sticks out in the wine. So our, I'm trying to make extremely this, you know, balanced, elegant, layered wines, but that have a mouth-watering acidity and a mouth-watering fruit character. So that rather than get into a bit heavy, like ripe blackberry-type characters, blackberry syrup characters, more porty-type characters, you know, after-dinner wine, basically, I'm trying, you know, red, bright red fruits. So we pick it a little earlier so that the fruits have a lot more strawberry and cherry and these bright flavors that, that really make your mouth water and complement your meal. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I travel to Napa quite a bit. I'm out there at least once a year. And uh, balance is the big buzzword these days because Napa, it's been criticized heavily over the past couple of years of the wines being out of balance and a bunch of them are. Mm-hmm. A bunch of them are balanced, but a bunch of them are out of balance. And you go to every tasting room and the buzzword man Oh, this wine is so balanced. This wine is so balanced. Describe to me what balance means to you. Okay. So there's a, there's, and this is a good question because balance means a lot of different things. And so one thing we'll hear a lot is, I know it's 16% alcohol, but you can't taste it. It's totally balanced. And, and that's not with my definition of balance, because my definition of balance, personal definition of balance, extends beyond the glass of wine itself. Okay. So, so how does it balance with the food? How does it balance with the evening? In other words, if, if the wine, if the alcohol is too high, and so three quarters of the way through your dinner, you're starting to get a little woozy, that's, the wine isn't balanced with your evening. So, so balanced wine, the, within the wine itself, you have balance in the sense that Everything is harmonious. We don't taste excessive tannin or excessive alcohol or excessive oak or excessive acidity or inadequate, not enough acidity, not enough tannin, not enough. You know, we have the, the traditional components of the wine are harmonious, but also it is harmonious with our meal and it's harmonious with our evening. And if all, all of those things come into play, then the wine is balanced. Right. And what are you doing in the vineyards to achieve that? I mean, other than okay. you know, obviously you're picking early. Yeah. Okay. So we're picking early. You know, some you, you don't you don't have the luxury of being you know way out of that super cool like out on the Sonoma coast where it's real mm-hmm. cool. Um, still gets pretty hot. I mean, you're you're fairly south in the valley, but not all the way. You know, um, right. what are you doing uh, farming wise to help achieve balance? The first thing is create a balanced vine. So, so vines are balanced just like wine is balanced. A balanced vine doesn't grows enough, but not too much. 
it stops growing early enough in the season, but not too early. It, you want the vine to stop growing at a certain point and then focuses energy on ripening the fruit. So if it's still growing, then it has too much water or fertilizer, and then it's not focusing on the fruit. If it can't grow enough, it doesn't focus on the fruit either because it doesn't have the resources to even ripen the fruit. So you, you, if there's too much fruit, then it's diluted and lacking in character. If there's not enough fruit, then the sugars go up too high and you have high alcohol wines that ripen too fast and so they have kind of weird flavors. You see, you're trying to create a balanced vine and the way you do that is at pruning time, assessing the vine. You don't just prune every vine the same. We spend a, we have a lot of effort into, um, a, a, into training employees to prune every single vine differently according to that particular vine. We fertilize the vine separately, even different parts of the vineyard, different fertilizers or no fertilizer, water the vines differently in different parts of the vineyard. We grow the ground cover between the vines differently. Some ground cover are aggressive to compete with water and nutrients so the vines don't grow as much. Other times we'll turn the, the cover crop in and till the soil so that all that feeds the, the plant so the plant grows more. We, you know, we've grow our vineyards organically, but there are a lot of good, you know, within organic farming, we have a lot of ability to use different fertilizers and treat the soil differently. And so, so we're, we're doing all these things to, to have the vine grow in a quote-unquote balanced fashion, and, the, and then the ripening. The flavors ripen as fast as possible and the sh- ahead of the sugars. The, you know, the sugars are racing ahead, and the flavors are racing ahead. And what, you're, what we're trying to do in the vineyards is grow the vine so that the flavors go faster than the sugars, so we can pick it bef- while the sugars are reasonable, because the sugar is translated into our alcohol, our final alcohol. So if I have too much sugar, alcohol is going to be too high. Not enough sugar, alcohol is going to be too low. We don't want alcohol too low. It's wine. It's, gonna, don't, or not, it's not water. But you don't want it too high because it will taste hot or, it, like I said, interferes with, for me, the enjoyment of the evening. If, you know, I want to get through my entire meal and feel good at the end. And so, so we try to get the sugars to slow down in our climate. We need the, in cool areas, they need the sugars to speed up. We live in a warm, sunny area, so sugar's not an issue. And then have the flavors move ahead so that we can pick it at peak ripeness while we still have moderate sugar levels. Rick, I'm going to ask you one more question about farming, and then we'll get into vinification. Um, in her book, uh, uh, Napa Valley Then and Now, Kelly White said, uh, Matthias views the vine, uh, critical though it may be, as only one component of the larger agricultural picture. Right. What does that mean? Okay, I'm going to think of what she means there. But I think that, that um, one thing I think she's trying to say there is that very many times people forget that vineyards are agriculture. And Jill and I, my wife is named Jill, she worked for many years for a nonprofit trying to save family farms. And that was early on in the local food movement. So she would lead seminars, for example, on teaching chefs how to sell, or sorry, teaching farmers how to sell directly to chefs, that sort of thing. So our mentality when we, got, when we started our wine was, our wine is an agricultural product, therefore, and grown by small family farmers, which are us, and we want it to be pure and to really reflect the season and reflect the variety. And it's just, so it's the same mentality of, of small organic 
vegetable grower trying to grow the perfect carrot, that the chef can take that carrot and do very little to it in the restaurant, in the kitchen, because they want to show how perfect this carrot is. That's the way we approach the wine. So we're not dressing it up in the winery, making it, you know, um, lose its agricultural provenance. So it's, we really think of it as just like, it's our, our is the wine version of your local CSA box from your local small family farmer. And we also grow other crops. We grow a lot of fruit that we sell at the farmer's market and we sell to restaurants and we make jam that we include in our wine club. And, you know, and that was something my wife was adamant about is that we're, here we are in the Napa Valley, a farming community, and there's no food. And so we're going to take some land and grow fruit. She wants, to, she wants kids to experience tasting the peach and hopefully change their life to realize how amazing food can be, fresh food, real food. And so um, they don't have to just be eating Snickers bars. <laughs> and so, so that's kind of what, what I think what Kelly's getting at. Do you find that growing other things other than grapes on your property, um, you know, obviously you're no longer a monoculture, which so many vineyards are. Do you think this uh, diversity helps your fruit? Help, help, helps, your, helps your grapes? Um, might help the grapes. Might. Um, we grow a lot of habitat plants as well and some aromatic plants like sages. And, um, and it, part of terroir is actually the aromas. And the reason for that is that grape berries are covered in wax, and the wax absorbs any sort of essential oils that are in the air. So that's why eucalyptus trees, like Martha's Heights, Vineyard. Oh God! Don't tell Joe Heights. He's been in his grave thinking. Yeah. you're going to tell him his grapes. His his wine smells like eucalyptus. It smells, yeah, and it does because the, if, if you can walk by a eucalyptus tree and you smell eucalyptus in the air, that those are essential oils we're smelling, and those are being gathered up by the grapes over the course of the season. And so bay trees get on there that, you know, the, the, the um, Provence, you really smell, you know, all of the wild shrubs Violet and herbs and all that yeah. around there. And that's part of terroir. And that's one of the great things about terroir. So, so having, so I'd like to think that some of the other things that we're growing are part of the aromas of our wine. I really have no idea, but it's, it, I just love growing everything. Let's talk about your winemaking a little bit. Okay. Um, how 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 interventionalist are you? I mean, are, are you are you inoculating with yeast? What are you what are you doing? You're not a natural winemaker, right? Um, so so my so what I'm doing with the wine is trying to, like I said, capture the purity of of the fruit, and so what um, I'm not that interested in the sort of microbial transformation or the microbial terroir of the wine cave. With, I am with, with, there's plenty of wines in this world that have a stamp of the cave in which they're made that I respect and cherish. I'm in Napa Valley, we don't have a cave. We rent space and we, we've, in the, in the 15 year history of our brand, we've been in, um, made our wine in probably six different wineries over the years. And the last thing I want is for that, whatever is living and growing in that winery to change the flavor of our wine. And so I want it to taste exactly like, like the fresh fruit that we harvested that day. And so 
for that reason, I choose to, to inoculate with yeast because I want, because I can use a very clean fermenting yeast that doesn't impart a lot of flavor that and that um, ferments um, steadily and thoroughly. And that way we have consistency and transparency with the, um, with the wine. You know, they don't, we don't have characters that are imparted by the different things that are living here, there, and, and yawn, and adding layers of complexity on there that don't, that aren't meaningful to me, because I, I'm trying to, again, get, capture that freshness. And then after that, after we ferment dry, we're basically trying to keep everything clean and, um, you know, keep the wine in good condition um, and bottle it. So we don't do, I don't really do a lot of fussing around with it and, you know, adjusting alcohol levels and acidity and things like that. It's, you know, we, uh, it's sort of what we start with. Some of the wines we use a little bit of new oak, which I th where I think it's traditional to the wine, like Cabernet. I think Napa Valley Cabernet, a little bit of new oak is, is a really nice part of the, that tradition of what that wine is. Back to the balance concept, you know, oak is an accent, not oak is a dominant flavor. Sure. Other wines, I don't think oak is traditional, and I don't, so we don't use it, or I don't think it fits with that wine. We make two Chardonnays. One has a little bit of new oak because it's a rocky site. The vine, the, it's pretty intense wine, and the oak softens it and is and balances it. The other Chardonnay is um, a more clayey site. It's a sort of high tone, bright, citrusy wine, um, not conducive to, to. I don't think. I think oak flavor would clash in that regard, so we don't, we, we barrel ferment it in used barrels. So, so those are some of the decisions I'm making. Um, we all of our whites are barrel fermented. I like barrel fermenting because it's a little warmer and a lot of the um, fermentation characters, the es these esters created during fermentation kind of blow off in that warmer fermentation and you get more of the background flavors. The more the, which I think, which more indicative of what the wine's gonna have over time when it ages. Does that help in that you know, in Napa Valley at least, uh, you know, you hear people crying, oh, the wine's got to be phenolically ripe. If you're picking so early, someone might say, oh, the wines aren't phenolically ripe. Does that barrel fermentation help that? Okay, so with all the stuff I'm doing in the vineyard, our wines are phenolically ripe. So it's a, there's a lot of situation where the hang time has gotten so, so long. Everyone looking for hang time that things of practices have changed in the vineyards for a lot of folks to just to increase hang time to increase hang time so that the winemakers get the hang time they're looking for but then what happens if you put the more water on and the more fertilizer to get the hang time then you need the hang time because it doesn't get right because you've been feeding it with a lot of water so it's a little bit of a self-perpetuating yeah sure kind of okay thing. that makes sense but also it's your definition of what's a how what is phenolically right because if um we our wines are all age-worthy, and part of what makes wine age-worthy is having phenolics that aren't quite as ripe, because the because during the aging process, the phenolics are keeping the wine fresh because right. they're uh, interacting with the oxygen. So if if the phenolics are all softened before you know before you make the wine, then you don't have the wine doesn't have the same ability to take that oxygen over the aging period. So, but the barrels, so but. All of that said, uh, picking on the earlier side, trying to keep alcohols low, I have to be very conscious in the winery of, um, that the, that of um, drinkability, essentially. So if I, I can't be real aggressive and beat up like a Cabernet ferment when you pick it at um, 
a month ahead of a lot of people. So what a lot of people might be that pick a month later could do a hotter fermentation, a longer maceration. I need to be careful because if I over extract, it's going to be extremely astringent. Yeah. So, so it's you just have to lay it down and come and see me in 20 years. Yeah, we don't want that. We want age. There's a difference between age worthiness and you have to age it. Right. Those are two totally different things. And so, so there's a lot of attention when, our, when we're fermenting to just making sure that, that, that uh, you know, we're not overdoing it. So we're maintaining a nice, supple wine. Well, let's taste some wine. Perfect. What do we got first? Um, Linda Vista Chardonnay. So tell me about this wine. Okay, so the Linda Vista Chardonnay is grown in, in the, right behind our house in the southwestern corner of Napa Valley in the Oakenola District. That is, that, before, there was a time period where that was considered Chardonnay country. Before, when Cardineros was considered sort of too cold and windy for grapes and they don't have a lot of water, Oakenola is where Chardonnay was getting planted. Chateau Montalena, you know, that when they won the Paris tasting with their Chardonnay, mm-hmm. that was predominantly from this corner of Oak Yeah, they got a little bit in Sonoma, Bacigalupi, a little Calistoga, but most of it was down here, like about a quarter mile from this vineyard. And so, so like this vineyard, this particular vineyard was planted about 25 years ago by Beringer for their Napa Valley Chardonnay. Since that was Chardonnay country, that, you know, that area, so they, that was a very large Chardonnay vineyard that they planted. Um, it changed hands a few times, and then um, I was able to lease it. The, the portion of it that remains, a lot of it isn't, is, was um, kind of, well, the big Behringer vineyard got changed hands, et cetera, and I got this, leased this piece of it. 14 acres and so it's you know it's older vines for us right now 25 year old vines is older vines for us it has you know and it's so we get so I really sort of cherish that we have this vineyard we sell so we still sell portions of fruit to Chateau Montalina because that's still where they buy their Chardonnay um, looking for that you know it's a, I, I just think of it as it's clay soils and the clay soils feed the vines water throughout the year so you don't get, it doesn't make a big, broad Chardonnay. With those kind of soils, what you get is a high-toned, more lemony yep, character. Definitely. You know, and the fruits tend to be more in the apple. Yeah, green apple, citrus. But yeah. there's, there's a good creaminess on the nose. So is that from leaves or malolactic? That's, well, it's, it's, there's no, it's all aged on the gross leaves, call it the bad name for leaves, but the gross leaves mean that you fermented it in the barrel and all the leaves, which are the dead yeast cells, sink to the bottom are just um, left there. So right. we age it on there to get some creaminess, but we don't stir it. With this, our style of wine, you know, we would lose all the citrus if we did it with the stirring, and I want to maintain that citrus. Sure. So we do not stir it, we keep it topped and keep it closed, but we let about two-thirds of it go through ML. And the reason for that was, it's back to the idea of balance, Without the ML, they would have too much acidity and be sharp tasting. And so I wanted to let it go through the ML and part of it go through the ML to soften the wine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, wow, wow, really bright acidity. That's wonderful. Um, how much does this do you make? We, this is our biggest production, so this is a little over 2,000 cases. 2,000 cases. So not a ton, but a good amount. Yeah. And um, pretty available. Yeah, this one's available. In, in, in the Chicago market. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yep. I mean, there's there are five or six retail locations in Chicago, and then a bunch of restaurants. Chicago, we actually just um, found out, my wife and I, um, that it is because we just we're still, even though we're we've been doing this business for a little while, you're still being 
small family business, you just sort of like continue to try to figure out how the heck to run the business. And we just compared, for the first time ever, compared our markets. And Chicago is our number three market in the country. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. Real long finish. Uh, Sort of screams for food, doesn't it? Yes, that's all of our wine. Most Chardonnay, or not most. Yeah, a lot of Chardonnay out there. Yeah. kind of just wants to club down and be the star of the show. Where this wants to. Well, be people drink Chardonnays in different ways. Yeah. you know, there's a cocktail Chardonnay. You know, like you, someone at the bar asks for a glass of Chardonnay. That's not this Chardonnay. All of our wines are all about food. That's lovely. If I'm at a bar, I'll drink a, generally drink a cocktail or a beer. Mm -hmm. And then we, when we sit down at the meal, that's when the wine comes out. 12.9% alcohol, so yeah. kind of nice again in that low kind of, you don't need to worry about having two glasses of wine at dinner and then going yeah. to bed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Terrific. Or you can, you know, if you're out for on a Friday night, you can start with, with your wife, you can start with a bottle of white and still get a bottle of red and you're okay, you're yeah, not right. knocked out. Great, what's next? Next it would be our Napa Valley white wine. So our white wine, we call it our white wine. Um, it was the first white that we made. We started this one in 2005. It's really the wine that put us on the map. Surprising to us, we didn't anticipate that. But it was sort of like hit the zeitgeist, this wine. It's a blend of Savion Blanc, Robola Gialla, which is from northeastern Italy. Um, your friend who's passed away now, George Ver, brought the cuttings over from Italy. Semion, which is a Bordeaux variety, and Tokai Friulano. And so the idea with this blend is, first off, blending is a little, the, the Chardonnay is a single vineyard that you, we, you just tried. And so a single vineyard wine, you try to show that vineyard. But there's a different tradition within wine, which is the art of blending, which is not so much about the, the vineyard, it's about the craft of, of blending and crafting, wine, a, right. crafting a wine. And that's the mentality behind this one. So this one, we, we basically are looking, the Savion Blanc is contributing the acidity and the grapefruit and the pineapple. The Rebola Jala gives you the stony, almost saline finish, the length and the texture. The Semion gives, it, there's the beeswax character that gives you this nice flesh on the wine fill out the cheeks, and then the um, Tokai Friolano is this little spice on the nose. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, yeah, it's got all of those things going on in it for sure. Really complex. Um, do you bottle a Rebola on its own? We do a Rebola on its own, totally different, because the Rebola is an ancient variety, and for most of the history of Rebola Gialla, it wasn't pressed and then fermented separately as a juice away from the skins, like a white wine. Right. It was fermented with the skins and stems, and right. so that's how we do our Rebola. Oh, so it's got that kind of cool... And so orange colored, and it has all the tannin and structure of a red wine, but it has the interesting stony Rebola characters. It's phenomenal with cheese, or like with um, like pork chop and applesauce, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. that's a tough wine pairing. Yeah. And so, yeah, very much a food wine. Um, and then finally, again, 2013 Napa Cab. Tell me about the Cabernet. Okay, so our, so you mentioned that you like those 1980s Cabernets, and so do I. When I, you know, first getting working in in vineyards in early 90s is when I started. So I was at that time they were still the um, late 80s Cabernets around as you know fairly fresh releases, and so I trying those Napa Valley Cabs. They blew my mind, basically. Mm -hmm. And I, that's always been, that year, late 80s, early 90s, has always been my touchstone for 
just to the sweet spot in Napa Valley Cab. I agree. I agree. Some of those earlier ones could be a little too green, mm-hmm. and then the later ones a little too fruity. There's there's that point there where they're still have they're they get into the fruit and the lusciousness, but there's all that the spice. The kind of pre-phylloxera replant yeah, time, right? Yeah, yeah, and lot you know wines that are just like dynamic, you know, layered. Lots of you know you have graphite and pencil shavings mixed in with like lots of brambly berries and strawberries and um, cherry, dark cherry, bay, tea, cigar. Those are the, th- you know, that's to me, that's not, you know, to me, Napa Valley, if you go to Napa Valley in, in the summer, you smell the oak trees and the redwood trees in the air. And that's what our cabin should have in it, you know, and, and that's, it, and it's also still has a fair amount of tannin that reaches out and touches you and lets you know, hey, you're drinking that Velvet You're drinking Cabernet. Cab, yeah, we're this not drinking not Pinot Noir. Velvety thing, yeah. you know, or, or Merlot or something. This is, reaches, like I said, it reaches out and grabs you. Yeah, um, yep. Really, really delicious. That's it. When you're going to reach out and grab a Napa Valley Cab, you're doing it for a reason, right? Yeah, right. You know, yeah. Not, it, this is not Merlot or no. Beaujolais or any, all these wonderful soft varieties. This is freaking Napa Valley Cab, and so... Yeah, we, we, you know, we're not, on that one, we're not trying to make it something that's not, that's for sure. And where's the fruit from this coming from? Um, so um, one vineyard in Rutherford, that gives you, the Rutherford gives you, that classic Rutherford dust is a real thing. And, you know, so that's the mm-hmm. nice, the, more the dried herbs and sort of the brighter red fruit in this vineyard, you know, the cranberry kind of bright red fruit. And then you have, if you have a vineyard in Coombsville, which is volcanic soils there, you get the black, that's the blackberry sort of fresh smashed blackberries mm-hmm. and, um, and that's where the tannin is coming from, the structure, the power. And then we have um, the, a vineyard on Dry Creek Road, which, which is in, the, it, Dry Creek Road is the, is the road that goes up to Mount Veter. So it's in a narrow canyon with redwood trees. And so it, the, as the sun goes, gets lower later in the summer, the day length shortens in that vineyard. And so the ripeness kind of drops off. And so you, that's where you get like these Bordelais characters of the pencil shavings and graphite and kind of a floral note from that vineyard. It's very light bodied, it's all aroma on that one. And then, then we have Red Hen Vineyard for the luscious red cherry and a little bit of t- Kiss of Bay. And, then, and that's an Oak Knoll, it's a great vineyard though. And um, um, then we have our home Merlot to just for some nice soft, soft red fruits to just kind of like balance out some of the intensity. Oh, Steve Mathiason from Mathiason Wines, you're, you, you're sort of like the uh, anti-Napa, Napa winemaker. Your wines are gorgeous and restrained and fantastic and thanks for your time. Thank you. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 